From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, welcome to Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Lots of news out of the State Department of Education this week. You wouldn't know it from the weather, but it is actually budget season, or at least the beginning of budget season uh, with the State Department of Education. Also some staff shakeups. We'll get to that. But let's start with the budget, and let's start with the budget conversations that are going on right now in the Department of Education. Uh, Clark, you sat in on one of those sessions Wednesday morning. Uh, Give us the rundown of uh, what was being talked about. This is really, Kevin, where we're going to see the budget start to take shape. When we talk about the budget, uh, we're talking about the 2019-2020 budget, the next budget that will be brought to the legislature just after the first of the year. This is where it really takes shape, Mm -hmm. um, where that budget is being developed. And so what happened is uh, State Superintendent Sherry Ybarra and the State Department of Education had a big meeting Wednesday morning where they had about 20 folks representing uh, more than a dozen different education, government, and political groups all gathered together in a room and kind of went through their priorities. What is most important to them? uh, What they would like to see? in the next uh, budget proposal. And I gotta tell you, the superintendent really got challenged in particular by leaders of two different education groups, the Idaho Education Association, uh, their president, Carrie Overall. Um, as Superintendent Ibarra really challenged Superintendent Ibarra to come up with a big, bold budget proposal. Carrie mentioned that uh, state revenues appear to be in good shape. The state recently wrapped up its most recent fiscal year with more than $100 million in money that it hadn't really anticipated. Mm -hmm. And so she's saying, you know, 5 and 6% have been great in the past. Let's dream bigger. Uh, Let's go bigger. And so that was a challenge that was issued to the superintendent. And uh, in a similar fashion, the Idaho Association of School Administrators uh, challenged the superintendent to um, dip into... (laughs) dip into reserves, dip into any surpluses, and have a one-time allocation, which is unusual in in the budget-setting world, uh, but to really beef up school districts' plans for school security enhancements. Mm -hmm. Uh, He said, uh, let's think outside the box, Uh, let's dip into those reserves, let's dip into that surplus and use it. Districts are doing another number of different things, modernizing their schools, updating cameras and security systems, Let's make that money available to them. But we've talked, Kevin, about how this is going to be potentially a really closely watched budget year yeah. and an interesting budget for a number of reasons, right? Right. I mean, first of all, I mean, what was being talked about Wednesday, it kind of foreshadows two big budget issues in the 2019 session when it comes to education. The issue of teacher pay, what you do with year five of the career ladder, and what you do uh, for veteran teachers, that's a looming issue. Mm-hmm. School security issues, a, a a looming issue, obviously. It's it's in the national conversation. It's in the state conversation. What do you do in terms of putting money into uh, security enhancements? These are big issues. And they'd be big issues regardless of the politics, but you have to look at this budget request in, in the prism of politics because when it comes out in September, uh, Superintendent Ibarra's budget proposal is going to be looked at probably more closely than in previous years. I mean, again, this is the process. Every year, the state superintendent is supposed to submit a budget to the state like any department head. That's how the budget process works. So nothing new there. And the public release of the budget, nothing new there. That's something that's been done for years. Um, 
But this year, it's going to be looked at very, very closely. This is the first time we've had uh, in several years, I guess going back to Tom Luna in 2010, where you had a sitting superintendent make a budget request while running for re-election. So I think whatever Superintendent Barr comes out with is going to be looked at in a political framework. If she does come in big, uh, you know, kind of following what uh, Carrie Overall and, and Rob Winslow were, were talking about, you know, there are going to be some people who are going to like that. There are some people who are going to say, oh, she's catering to special interests. Right. If she comes in with a modest budget request, uh, maybe in that 5 to 6% range, uh, there are going to be those who say that she's uh, she's not... You know, she's not being assertive enough about education policy and education needs, and she's catering maybe to more conservative uh, electorate. So it's kind of a no-win situation for the superintendent. And, you know, this meeting Wednesday probably put her in more of a box than, than she was already in. I mean, I, I'm not sure that uh, the IEA and the IASA uh, did her a whole lot of favors uh, publicly saying, hey, you know, Go for it. Go, go big. Go big or go home kind of uh, sentiment. So it's going to be really curious uh, to see how this how this plays out. What kind of a budget proposal uh, Ibarra presents? How is it perceived when it's out there? What kind of reaction does uh, uh, you know does Cindy Wilson have to this budget request? Uh, and how does it become a campaign issue as Ibarra and Wilson uh, prepare for the November elections. It is going to be interesting, and you're right. One thing this meeting does give the superintendent, though, is it gives her that ability to say, listen, I met with the folks in the field, uh, the folks with the boots on the ground, and I listened to them, uh, and this, and I'm responding to their needs from the field. So it does give her that opportunity, but the politics is going to be interesting. As you know, Kevin, as our, as our listeners know, there's going to be a new governor in place during the next legislative session, two new chairs of the legislature's joint budget committee are going to be in place. And so that's going to be interesting. There could be this really awkward situation. Think back four years ago uh, where Superintendent Ibarra had to essentially present Tom Luna's budget request right after she won election, and it was awkward. But if Superintendent Ibarra is not reelected, it could set up this really awkward situation where the new incoming superintendent, who in that case would be Cindy Wilson, would have to present Ibarra's budget uh, to the yeah. legislature something like 10 days after taking right. on the job. And, and so that could be really interesting. But You would have a superintendent of the other political party uh, presenting uh, her opponent's budget. Uh, yeah, it would be very, it would be awkward. But this is sure. going to be perhaps the last year, the last budget under the existing uh, school funding formula. And we've talked all summer about how there's the group working to rewrite the state's funding formula, make it more of a enrollment-based, student-based model. Mm -hmm. Those we talked about are that progressing. Right, and we talked about that a lot last week, so we won't uh, belabor the school funding formula process. I do have an analysis piece at idahoednews.org that sort of talks about some of what we uh, we talked about on the podcast last week. So we'll yeah. read that and we'll, we'll move on from that. But yeah, I mean, you've got the funding formula change in this mix. You've got all of these new faces. Uh, it's going to be a very different feel to this 2019 legislative session, which kind of brings us to the other news that came out of uh, the State Department of Education this week. Yet another shakeup at the very inner circle uh, of Abara's uh, leadership team. Yeah, this summer she's replacing really the second top high-profile member of her executive staff, um, Duncan Robb, her chief policy officer, her chief policy advisor, has given notice and is going to be leaving that position 
uh, in the middle of August. And he's going to be succeeded by a familiar name and a familiar face. A lot of people will remember Will Goodman, mm-hmm. uh, who was uh, Superintendent Ibarra's technology, kind of guru, technology liaison early in her term. Uh, he since returned to the Mountain Home School District, but he will be coming back to work for Ibarra in more of an elevated role as this chief policy officer position. And this comes on the heels of Superintendent Ibarra's chief deputy, Pete Kohler, just retired at the end of June when retired the fiscal year... Like the third time. Yeah. It's like he announces retirement, but this time it's stuck. He, he has retired. He's probably not listening to this podcast. He's probably fishing. Hopefully he's on the uh, the Henry's Fork uh, or the South Fork yeah, of the Snake That would be River. my bet. One of those. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so anyways, uh, she just replaced... Uh, her chief deputy, really the number one position under her. Uh, that went to uh, Chalice Superintendent Peter McPherson. Right. He's already started. He was introduced uh, to many of those education leaders on Wednesday. And he was at the funding that, formula committee meeting yeah. last week, as was Goodman. So you know, uh, changing the guard is definitely underway. But you've got that. You've got Duncan Robb out and Will Goodman coming in. And those are really two of the four members of the executive staff. And, Kevin, we have talked about how important those positions are if the superintendent is reelected, and if that team stays intact, those will be kind of the two point people during the next. Those would be the two point people during the mm-hmm. next upcoming legislative session, the chief deputy and the chief policy officer. Those are the people that really have to present proposed legislation, yeah. testify for the legislature, work relationships with lawmakers and with the governor's office and the education groups. Difficult, highly visible. High stakes, high stress positions. Right, right. It, the, it's kind of the public face of Ibarra's administration and, and also the behind the scenes faces of that administration because it's going to be, you know, as it's been in the past, it's going to be, you know, the chief policy officer and the, and the chief deputy who, is, who are meeting behind the scenes with legislators, who are talking to them in the hallway about uh, proposals and, you know, and bending their ears and, 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 you know, hearing feedback from legislators, you know. So if a bar is reelected, you're going to have a very different uh, team at the state house, And that's assuming she gets reelected. Yeah. I mean, if, if Cindy Wilson does defeat Sherry Ibarra in November, you know that she's going to bring in her own people. She's right. going to have her own inner circle, her own leadership team. That's just how it goes. So either way, you're going to have some new folks, uh, presenting education policy on behalf of the State Department of Education to some new faces in, in, in charge of JFAC. Uh, new House Education new, Chair? A new House Education Chair. We don't know who that's going to be. Uh, a whole new team with a whole with a new governor. So, you know, it's, you know, everybody wears name tags at the State House. We'll be wearing name tags, but, you know. We might have to look at them. We'll have to look at them really closely and see what color the tags are and see who, who's working for whom these days. It, it's going to be a very... Uh, different cast of characters uh, at the State House in 2019. Yeah, and 2019, obviously a big year. We talked about it with the budget funding priorities. Uh, but the last year of some of those task force recommendations are up for action in 2019. Biggest issue of all is the career ladder. There was unanimous support. That's the salary law. Uh, unanimous support for funding the fifth year. But also a lot of talk, as you mentioned, what do we do for veteran teachers next year? What do we do as we transition to a new, theoretically, to a new school funding formula? Right. How do we hold those districts harmless? How do we address teacher pay? You talked last week and in your analysis over the fight over the line items. 
2019, I mean, we're not at this point predicting a slow, boring session by any stretch. No, it's going to be a very interesting session, some big issues and some new players. So we don't know what we're going to get. No. And we won't know, you know, it won't come into any any real focus until after the election, uh, after uh, legislative leadership uh, gets together in December and we start to see who... Who's going to be in charge in JFAC? Who's going to chair JFAC? Who's going to chair House Education? So, stay tuned. Uh, a lot of uh, moving, po- lots of moving pieces right now. Uh, the superintendent also um, replaced her director of academics. Um, you know, so that's another director position that has changed, and the science and STEM coordinator has changed since the legislative session. If you remember, right. there was a big three-year battle uh, over science standards in the state of Idaho that was just resolved. Uh, in 2018. So right, maybe wanted... lower level folks on the org chart, but yep. had a very tangible impact on that uh, science standards debate that finally did get resolved this year. Yeah. If you want to get caught up on some of the comings and goings, uh, check out our story on the staff shakeup. Uh, also go back and look for the budget priorities story and your analysis piece on the funding formula. That'll really get you caught up on what's going on right now and why this work in July will become so important once we get to January and February and March. Mm-hmm. So head over to IdahoEdNews.org and check out those three or so stories uh, to get caught up. You set the stage, too, this week with a story about something that's going to uh, go down in August. Mm-hmm. Uh, the state is going to issue a list of the state's lowest performing schools. And that's that's going to be a very sensitive release when that comes in mid-August. But you kind of set the stage a little bit talking about what this list means, what happens when a school lands on the list. So give us a sense of the landscape because this is going to be very closely watched when it does come out. And this is another one of those things where I don't think anybody knows quite how it's going to go. This is the first time, at least the first time in recent history, uh, that the state has done something like this. We haven't really had an accountability plan uh, at any point during the superintendent's four-year term here. And and so this is actually where this comes from. This is part of the state's plan to comply with the Every Student Succeeds Act, that federal ESSA law that we've talked about over the last uh, year and a half. And so what's going to happen is next month, the state will put out a list of the bottom 5%, the lowest performing schools in the state of Idaho. And you say, how in the heck are we going to measure that? And you walk through all the and, and determine. Uh, how how we determine what these lowest performing schools are. It's going to be based on a combination of about five factors. Student achievement, student growth, English language proficiency, and uh, graduation rates where applicable, as well as these kind of school quality indicators such as the uh, the surveys. Mm, student, ter- student, the student surveys mm-hmm. that we started doing this year. So based on those five criteria, they will come up with a list of the 5% bottom 5% of lowest performing schools. And we expect there's going to be 21 or more schools on that list. The schools do not know yet. The state has not finished the calculations. But I imagine that there are a handful of principals and superintendents who realize right now that they might be on the bubble and that that might be uh, forthcoming. But the point of this, Kevin... Right, right. What happens when a school makes it onto the list? We've heard, the some, we've heard some comments about are they doing this to embarrass the school, to shame the teachers. That That's not what it's about. Um, it is about identifying those schools and then surrounding them with resources and creating this three-year time period 
where they will have an opportunity to develop a plan, implement that in plan, and then improve ideally student achievement. And so what's going to happen? Each of those schools that's identified is going to have a share of uh, federal money coming their way. They're going to split about $2.1 million. That can go for school improvement strategies. Mm-hmm. The State Department of Education will also ins- assign each of those schools an educational coach or an instructional coach, someone that's going to get together with the existing building leadership team and say, okay, where are we falling short? Uh, where are we falling short? What's going on? Where have we not been as successful as we would like to be? How can we address that? And so the whole idea is to surround these schools with resources, to get them back on course, and to have a little help along the way. And then in three more years, there will be another period of identification where we look at the five factors, and uh, schools will have an opportunity to actually exit from that status if they do post improvements right. and show achievement gains uh, along the way. So it's it, a part of it is accountability, giving the taxpayers, giving the families and parents an idea of how their schools are doing. A part of it is improving those schools that right. need a little extra help that aren't making the progress that they should be making. Right. And we've seen that before. We were talking about it before we uh, turned on the mic. Uh, the, you know, we've seen when schools... <laughs> are low rated or, or low ranked that, you know, administration at that local level can take that ranking to heart and take it as a challenge and, and try to do something about it. Uh, you know, you brought up the example of, and you know, you've written about it before, Horseshoe Bend. There's a couple of different ways that schools will be able to take this when the list comes out, if they're on the list. Uh, and the example I, I gave is Horseshoe Bend. This was a school that Three, four, or five years ago, under the old five-star rating system, I think they only got two stars. They were basically identified as a failing school. And rather than having a pity party and say, woe is me, and this is so unfair, they, they embraced it. It was a wake-up call in Horseshoe Bend. They started looking at student data. Uh, they started working with a consultant with an instructional coach. And they turned it around within about three years and won the National Blue Ribbon. Andrew and I have been out several times and talked to their lead teacher. I believe her name is Cora Larson. And rather than taking the news as something that was discouraging and disheartening, uh, they rallied behind it. They said this needs to be about the students. They started taking a hard look at data. They started taking a hard look at achievement. And they worked with an instructional coach, and they made some improvements. And they have been held up as a success story. And they went from being considered a failing school, to one of those schools that they bring up and recognize and give awards, and they have a chance to talk with their peers about what happens. And so that would be the way to take it right. uh, when this list comes out. And we've, we've kind of speculated about the types of schools and the factors. Uh, we know poverty is likely going to be a factor. Right. I mean, I think when this list comes out, we're going to see a correlation between the low-performing schools and poverty. And this yeah. is a point that... Uh, several commenters have made on, on our Facebook page, and it's a totally valid point. Whenever we get any kind of rankings when it comes to test scores, graduation rate, go-on rates, it's it's almost every time you see a correlation between uh, rankings yep. and scores and, and poverty. I would expect nothing less uh, this time around. That's just, un- unfortunately, that's just the, the reality of it, and that's something we'll 
We'll look we'll at the numbers know, and, and the we'll demographics and, as, and yeah. as it comes out in, in August. So and we'll talk about how those schools have challenges that um, other types of schools would not face those challenges, and, and, and so we'll talk about this. But it's not. We'll see how people take it. We'll see how the rollout goes. It's not intended to punish or embarrass the schools. Part of it is accountability. Part of it is taxpayers and parents have a right to know with what's going on with their school, how it's performing, the education their children are receiving. And we have that information to show those parents and those taxpayers that information. So that's part of it. It's not about punishing them. It's really about putting the brakes on, identifying where the problem is, and then sharing some resources and a plan to hopefully get back on track. So hopefully in three more years, they won't be on that list again. But it's a new thing. We haven't really done it in Idaho. It'll be the first time rollout. Um, so we'll follow it closely, and we'll try to tell several stories. I imagine we'll be visiting a number of those schools. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll be looking at the turnaround plans. We'll be interviewing the education coaches. And so it isn't just going to stop for us when the list comes out to sort of point at them and say, oh, look at this. Yeah, here's your list. Um, right. We're going to try to follow this closely uh, over this three-year period and see what their experience is like. Yeah. Um, so but stay anyway. tuned for that. should be the week of August 16th. We're also, real quickly, going to identify the state's top-performing schools uh, over the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, schools that exceed state benchmarks, schools that, that perform in the top 10 percentile. We will celebrate and identify those schools. They will also identify schools that fall below graduation rate thresholds regardless of other performance indicators. I believe that's about a two-thirds, 67% threshold. So the schools that fall below that, whether they're an alternative school or a traditional school, will also be identified. Coming later in the year, there's going to be new state report cards with even more data out for all schools. And so there's kind of a three-tiered rollout of additional data, but it all comes back to this ESSA compliance plan and school accountability. That's where this comes from. Uh, So stay tuned for that. First news, we do expect long about August 16th. So if you're looking at your calendar, that's right before back to school. (laughs) Uh, But probably the week of August 16th for the initial list of those uh, lowest performing schools. So Stay tuned for that. We will update that, and we will follow that situation closely. Kevin, I wanted to touch on a couple of other items. Uh, You took a look at a state study of near-peer counseling. Uh, First of all, what is Mm near-peer counseling, and what were some of the encouraging signs that the state noticed in its study? Right. So this is one of several different approaches that uh, school districts and charter schools can take to try to help high school students figure out what they want to do after graduation. the premise behind a near-peer mentoring program, and, and these are mentors, these are, these are recent college graduates uh, who come into the schools, who are hired by the schools, and really kind of help those high school seniors work their way through the process of applying to colleges, applying for financial aid, applying for scholarships, and you know, get them prepared for, you know, once they decide where they're going to go to college, if they're going to go to college, you know, how do you make that transition from high school to college. You know, how do you hit all those deadlines? Make sure you have housing, make sure you're, you know, all your forms are filled out. Uh, the State Board of Education looked at the 10 high schools who had a near-peer mentoring program in place. Uh, I think it was 2016, 2017 was the study period. And what, uh, what the board found was an increase in the percentage of high school students from these schools who went straight on into college. 
Uh, and what they saw was a, a noticeable increase in, in those enrollment rates and, and, and an increase that could not be attributed to anything else. I mean, when you yeah. look at all the variables, as researchers do, uh, they were able to pin down that the near-peer mentoring seemed to be the factor that made a difference when they looked at these uh, schools with near-peer mentoring as opposed to similar schools with similar demographics. And what I also found interesting about this was that the improvements were strongest with male students. And that's a big We've deal. We've talked about that before in some of those numbers you've looked at. That's a big deal because uh, male students are less likely to go on to college than female students. That's been a chronic issue nationally, but it's a very pronounced issue mm-hmm. in Idaho. I mean, you, you just have lower go-on rates with, with male students. So they're more likely to just go into the workforce as opposed to continuing their education. So if you're getting an improvement there, that's significant as well. So... Some encouraging news, uh, the researcher with the state board who, who did this uh, study is already saying, you know, what we may need to do now is look at this and see if these students who are coming out of the near peer mentoring programs, whether they're actually staying in school right. and getting a degree, because that's the objective long term for the state. It's that not relates to that pesky 60% percent That, that you very difficult that. 60% hurdle, because it's not about just getting students to pick a post-secondary program, whether it's four-year college, two-year college, or professional technical, you want those students to then complete the work. Yep. Get a degree, get a certificate, get something to take into the workforce. And stay here in Idaho or move well, to well, Idaho from somewhere right. else. Right. I mean, that, the long-term objective here is is completion. So that's kind of where the state board might want to take the research in the future. So some encouraging news out of the state board. Yeah. Uh, Look for that story if you want to find out a little bit about what a couple of those districts are and how it was working, uh, some of the factors. Um, But yeah, college and career advising, uh, go on rates, those are all hot topics in education in the state of Idaho. So I imagine a lot of eyeballs on this new study uh, and some opportunities for some follow-up study and some longer-term longitudinal uh, study as well. Right. And, And another thing I wrote about in the past week, and this is on my blog, uh, a national ranking, seems like I'm always talking about national yeah. rankings, but this one I found very interesting. It looked at the percentage of high school students who fill out a FAFSA, and yeah. that's the federal uh, financial aid form. If you're the parent of a high school senior, your eyes are twitching right now because uh, the mere mention of FAFSA, it, it's it's a complicated form. It's a confusing form. It's a time-consuming form. As a parent, I remember it all too well, but it's a very important form because it's the precursor for students to qualify for federal yeah. financial aid, whether that's a Pell Grant or, uh, or loans or work study. What this national group found was that Idaho was one of the lowest ranked states in the nation in terms of percentage of high school seniors who fell out of FAFSA. Um, what I also found interesting was that all of the other states that are down near the bottom, the few states that uh, Idaho are, you know, came in ahead of, all Western states. I'm yeah. not sure what that all means. I don't know if that's sort of a uh, suspicion, skepticism of all things federal government. That may or, be a factor. Uh, that may be a factor. Uh, that may be, uh, I, I don't know. I, I really, uh, but that struck me rather interesting that uh, it wasn't just Idaho near the bottom. Um, also interesting with, the, with those rankings, uh, the, the researchers did find that Idaho's numbers are moving in the right direction. You're seeing a higher percent of students filling out the FAFSA. And that doesn't really surprise me because 
it's almost become commonplace now in high schools across the state to have a FAFSA night mm -hmm. where uh, high school seniors and their parents are encouraged to come to the school, come to the auditorium, get some dinner, and maybe get some help from a financial aid expert in filling out the FAFSA. Uh, all geared towards getting kids to and kids and their parents to fill out this paperwork to, to check off that box as part of the uh, the college application process. So not surprising that those numbers should be trending upward. That's what you would want to see when you're making this an area of emphasis as a state. So kind of a mixed uh, mixed verdict out of this study. But uh, look at my blog. You can see the results. You can see the rankings and get some more detail. And why do we care? Our research and the numbers often show uh, that that Pell Grant, that that student loan could be the decisive factor in a young person's decision to go on to college. If you don't fill out the FAFSA, you're not going to be eligible for picture. a lot of exactly. the uh, financial aid, especially grants and government funding and scholarships and things like that. It, so it can be a decisive factor, but if you don't fill out the FAFSA, it's you know you're not going to get yeah. the money. Yeah. Uh, so interesting stuff. I know you'll continue to take a quick look at it. Real quick, next week is going to be busy. Uh, we've talked about how politics has been a theme this summer. It'll be even more so next week on Center Stage. Explain what's coming up next week and why why we're looking forward to it. Right. I think our podcast is pretty much going to focus in on what happens Thursday at the, um, the Superintendents Association meeting in Boise. You're going to have Sherry Ibarra and her Democratic opponent, Cindy Wilson. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure the uh, the group is calling it a debate or a Forum. joint appearance. Yeah. You know, whatever you want to call it. I believe this is the first time that Ibarra and Wilson have been at the same event, on the same stage since the primary, at least since the primary. And I don't know if it's the first time, period. But it will be interesting, especially with that audience. I mean, school superintendents, school administrators, a smart, savvy audience. Uh, I'm going to be really interested to kind of see the interplay between the two candidates, see what kind of, if, if questions come from the floor, what, what are people wanting to hear. Um, so I think we'll focus the podcast uh, next week on kind of a you know, post-game breakdown of that first uh, joint appearance between uh, Republican Sherry Ibarra and Democrat Cindy Wilson. Yeah, that's a knowledgeable audience that they're going to be in front of. You can't fake it uh, no. with that group if you're talking about school funding or if you're talking about school policy initiatives. Uh, so the one-sentence elevator answer isn't probably going to work there. Not gonna fly with this group. Uh, no. So we're going to see how strong these candidates are. Uh, we're going to see how sharp they are in August. Uh, this is sort of the very beginning stages of the general election campaign. Uh, but I think both candidates will be tested. We'll see how sharp they are. We'll see how they interact with fellow educators. In this case, it'll skew towards administrators in the room. Uh, I think it'll be interesting. Yeah, I think and, it'll and, be and, revealing. And the, the tone and kind of the, the body language and the rhetoric is all going to be interesting to watch because, you know, we've seen indication that, that Cindy Wilson is not afraid to take the fight to Sherry Ibarra in this race. I mean, she's, you know, you know thrown a couple of barbs at Ibarra in, in the past few weeks. Yeah. Now we'll see them on the same stage. Uh, we'll see kind of the, uh, the dynamic uh, when you've got them uh, going face to face. Yep. If you want to catch up on that one, we should have full coverage next Thursday afternoon. Uh, we will devote most of our podcast next Friday uh, to that forum, to that campaign appearance and so stay tuned to that we are really looking forward to that i think that wraps this week up as always we have a lot of fun on the extra credit podcast talking about this intersection of policy and politics and we're excited for you guys to come along for the ride so thank you as always so much for listening to extra credit i'm clark i'm kevin have a good week